You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. Colossians chapter 4, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here we come to what would have been a contentious issue uh, in the early church, or at least a quandary for the early church. Many slaves and masters would actually be potentially in church together. And of course, as I mentioned in our previous study, an overarching question that they would have asked is, now that we are one in Christ, are the distinctions between us now gone? In other words, how is a wife to treat her husband now that we are one in Christ? How is a child to treat their father now that they are one in Christ? How is a servant supposed to treat their master now that they are one in Christ? And so in one sense uh, here, Paul is answering a very difficult question that the early church was dealing with. Now, I think it's important in our modern reading of a text like this to remember the setting that Paul was writing to. There were millions of slaves, uh, perhaps over 50% of the population, maybe 60 million people throughout the Roman Empire enslaved. They were the backbone and foundation of the Mediterranean economic life. And many of them were highly educated. You had physicians and lawyers and teachers who were actually enslaved. Now, sometimes we attempt to make it sound like it wasn't that big of a deal and that it was very similar to modern employment. But I think that would be a disservice to the slaves of that era to make such a claim. Aristotle is quoted as saying things like, the slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. He said the slave is a tool with a soul. So that was some at least of the uh, thought in that era that Paul was writing to. And this should be evidenced even in the New Testament. You have a man named Onesimus who fled from his master in order to find anonymity in the country in the uh, city of Rome uh, so people did not want to be uh, enslaved uh, at, at least at times and so we can't uh, make it sound like it was just not that big of a deal it was and uh, barbaric treatment of slaves as far as we know was lawful but not widespread and during the Christian era it was actually beginning to slow down so that was the setting that Paul was ministering in uh, it is different it was different than the slavery in American history it wasn't uh, didn't have the same brutal barbaric edge to it it didn't have the same in inhumane edge to it there were still an education, still pay, still families, 
Uh, and so, but there still, it, it wasn't, it wasn't nothing. It was something. So, given that, why wasn't Paul stronger in condemning slavery? I think that's a good question that the modern reader would potentially ask. Why didn't Paul come against slavery? Why did he tell servants here to obey their earthly masters? Uh, why would he say such a thing? And of course, that's a good question because the ownership of another human being is detestable, so slavery shouldn't be con condoned. So why didn't Paul come out and condemn slavery uh, more fully? Well, I think there were some pr pragmatic reasons. Uh, Christianity was, wasn't a big significant voice early on. They weren't a political powerhouse with some kind of major voice attempting to change uh, Roman society politically. I think there were also so, some circumstantial reasons. It seems that there's some evidence that the Romans were beginning to grant freedom to their slaves and that slave conditions were already improving. But I think the biggest reason was the gospel reason. Paul, as he preached the gospel, that was his main message to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, understood that as that message was preached, it would be a slow, lethal injection to slavery in general because now you would have a group of people who saw each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, as equals together, even though there were distinct roles that they still operated in. And Paul is evidencing this even in his writing because he is actually addressing the slave and speaking to a slave. This was a huge cultural step. And when you consider that Luke, who was uh, a very prominent New Testament author writing the book of Luke and the book of Acts, when you consider that Luke was potentially a slave, uh, it's just a, a major thing to consider indeed. And so Paul tells slaves to obey their masters or for bond servants to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, the amazing thing here is that uh, here he tells these servants to obey their masters. And oftentimes this simple exhortation is rejected and neglected even by a Christian worker, not even a slave. It's much easier for them to obey. And so often we don't. Notice the phrases that he uses to describe how their work is not to be conducted. He says, not with eye service. Literally, this is eye slavery. And, uh, you know, slaves oftentimes had little motivation to work hard when unsupervised. And as employees, we have much motivation to be diligent and effective even when we are not being watched. And I want to exhort you and encourage you as a Christian worker, laborer, you know, you're not enslaved, but do not do your work with eye service. And I realize that in many work environments, others might despise you for your willingness to give all-out effort even when no one else is watching. You know, the rest of the team might say to you, hey, you know, ease off a little bit. If we take it easy, then not, you know, they won't expect too much of us. But a good Christian laborer does not care for the uh, thoughts of others 
they work hard, they're diligent, they get after it. He also says, verse 22, not as people pleasers, uh, not serving with a goal to just make someone else happy uh, in the sense of just saying, hey, you've seen me work and at this little moment now, I'm going to do something that pleases you. Here, here's a cup of coffee or would you like some cream or some sugar with that kind of thing. But in reality, that person just does the little things to please someone, but they don't do the main work. And it's so frustrating to work with a person like this. They often garner favor and promotions. But, uh, but to continue to be a person who says, look, I'm not here to... Uh, you know, kiss up to anyone. I'm going to work hard and be diligent. With verse 22, sincerity of heart. No pretension, no phoniness, but just really going for it, earnestly throwing yourself into your work. A wonderful thing. This is the key to all of it, verse 23. Ask for the Lord and not for men. I can think of no greater way to inject excitement and passion into your work or into your studies or how to inject uh, purpose and meaning into your work, your studies, your responsibilities than to consider this. You are not doing it for men. You are doing that for the Lord. Now, obviously, there are some careers and some jobs that cannot be done for the Lord. But that list is very small by comparison. You can collect garbage for the Lord. You can be a lawyer, lawyer for the Lord. You can be in politics for the Lord. You can teach in public education for the Lord. You can pastor for the Lord. You can do so many things for the Lord. As long as your job doesn't require you to actually sin according to God's word, you can do it as unto the Lord, as a service unto the Lord. It's amazing to me that he receives uh, that work. He says, oh, thank you. It's as if you've done it for me. You're serving in my sight. Man, just thinking of Jesus as your boss, as your director, as your leader, as your professor, it should inject excitement, passion, purpose, meaning, excellence, attention to detail into everything that you do. As for the Lord, he says, verse 23, and not for men. You might have a boss, a leader, a professor that is so difficult to respect, but you can certainly respect the Lord. And so he says, as you live this way, verse 24, what you're doing is you are serving the Lord Christ and you will from the Lord receive the inheritance as your reward. And what we sow, we will also reap. And the Lord has a reward system. And so trust and know and understand that as we work diligently before him, you might see that reward in the form of your paycheck or a promotion. You might not. But as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. There is a reward coming. Now, a word of 
perhaps exhortation, but also a word of comfort, potentially. In verse 25, when he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The question about this statement is, who is Paul referring to when he says, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. It seems clear that he's speaking about the Lord being the one who pays back and showing no partiality because he's just said that we're to serve the Lord and we'll re receive an inheritance from him as our reward. So what kind of wrongdoer is Jesus going to pay back? Well, in one sense, it's very natural because the next thing that he lists as he begins speaking to masters, it's very natural that he would be comforting a slave regarding wrongdoing he's experienced and that Jesus will judge the wrongdoing master. But in another sense, it'd be very easy for a slave who is being exhorted that they should not serve with eye service and people as people pleasers, that if they do wrong, they will also be paid back for the wrong he has done. It's just good to know that the Lord sees all. I think in one sense that uh, the Lord is speaking to both parties and is speaking to all of us in one sense so that we might understand that, listen, we are living and serving before the Lord. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, we would potentially expect that he would say, Masters, set your servants free. Uh, however, uh, you know, we've already gone through the reasons that Paul would not have said it to them. He was interested in preaching the gospel. What he wanted to do, though, with these masters is for them to consider their servants as human beings, to consider them as equal to them, but that they were only operating in a role of authority, but that they were co-equal with their servants. So he says, treat them justly and fairly. And I'm really in one sense, in just a pragmatic way, for many people in that culture, it would have been so much better to have a Christian master than it would have been to be set free in that culture to try to fend for yourself. But he tells them, he says, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I think this is a great word for anyone who is in any position of authority. Be just, be fair, keep your commitments and your promises, be faithful, love on your uh, team and encourage them and bless them and lead them well, understanding that you are not the ultimate authority, you are under the authority of a master in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Submit to his lordship. The best authority here on earth is also under authority. Know that you are under the authority of Christ. Now, as we turn to verse 2, we're actually entering into a new section here in Paul's epistle. We've 
dealt with the self, chapter 3, verse 5 through 11. He tells us what to put to death and what to put off. We've added the features of the new nature. We've put on Christ, so to speak. Chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. And then we've looked at our relationships. Husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, and masters. Now Paul has the question of, well, what do I do with the world in which I live? And I think in one sense, the answer is very simple. It's to pray. It's to pray. It's to pray for the people around you. It's to pray for open doors for the gospel and to redeem the time as you live this prayerful life in the world in which you live. In other words, you could ask the question like this. If we're a new humanity, how are we to live inside this world? How do we interact with the communities that we live in? Well, answer number one is found in verse two. Pray continually. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So his first exhortation here, if you're asking the question, hey, I, you know, okay, now I know how to deal with myself and how to deal with others in my life that I have relationships with, but how do I deal with those outside of those relationships? Well, continue steadfastly in prayer. In a general sense, be a person of prayer. Be all in, devoted completely to prayer. Some of, some Bibles will say that. Devote yourselves to prayer. Here in the ESV, continue steadfastly in prayer. There's an there's a, a focus upon it, a diligence in it. I think in some ways, the modern church has so much to learn about prayer. I would encourage you, pray to God as your Father. Speak to Him as a loving, benevolent, heavenly Father that longs to hear you. When you pray, ask. At times, be specific before the Lord. You don't need to butter Him up. You don't need to persuade him, so to speak, but ask, be specific. Sometimes pause yourself and ask the question, do I even know what it is that I'm driving for in this particular subject in prayer? We're invited by God to ask and to seek and to knock. Intercede in prayer. Think about other people and Pray for them and their needs and their lives. It's one of the greatest ways to become a more selfless person and to be set free from the bondage of self. Be expectant in prayer. And listen. As you listen to your prayers, you can discover so many things about yourself, your heart, your motives, your desires, your false gods, your functional saviors, so to speak. Continue steadfastly in prayer. He says here in verse 2 to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now this word watchful is an interesting word throughout the New Testament. It's used mostly in two distinct ways. Number one, in light of the Lord's return. Staying awake, uh, being ready. And uh, a lot of it has the idea, this watchfulness is used in the light of the Lord's coming, the Lord's return. The close of Matthew chapter 24 is a great example of that. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not 
expect. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. From Matthew chapter 24. But this word watchfulness is also used by Jesus to describe a watchfulness not in light of his return, but in light of coming temptation. Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So watch in prayer so that you're ready for the Lord's return, but also as temptation comes that you're able to stand. And then, of course, praying, he says there in verse 2, with thanksgiving. Remember God's salvation. Remember God's faithfulness. Be a thankful person for what the Lord has done. Now, Paul has told them here to pray. But in light of praying, uh, what should they pray for? Well, Paul said it this way in verse 3. He said, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So, you know, as long as you're praying, Paul says, pray for us, pray for us. And Paul, of course, is uh, thinking of himself and his co-laborers, namely uh, Tim uh, Timothy. Uh, but he really is speaking of himself in one sense, because in verse 4 he says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So notice what Paul is desiring. He says, listen, as long as you're praying, pray for for me, pray for Timothy, pray for those who are busy about the Father's business, investing in the kingdom and preaching that gospel message. You remember Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus taught us to pray? He said, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. A major part of the Christian's prayer life should be focused upon the kingdom, upon the kingdom, not just Praying for self and our own concerns and our own worries, but praying for the kingdom of God. Specifically, Paul says, that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, this is fascinating because Paul wants a door open for himself, but not just for himself, a door for the word. You know, he wanted opportunities himself. But what he was really looking for wasn't just an opportunity to speak, but for open doors for the word to be embraced by individual human hearts. And I found by experience that it's so true. You know, there's, an, there's preaching the gospel to a person, and then there's preaching the gospel to a person who's heart is ready and prepared. There is a door for the word inside of their lives, inside of their hearts. You might remember what Jesus said concerning the four different types of soil that received the seed of the word of the kingdom. You know, one, it fell upon stony ground. One fell upon the wayside. One fell upon ground with thorns and thistles. But one fell upon good soil that bore fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And so we're praying. 
we're praying that as the word goes out, there are doors for the word, that people want to receive the word, that their hearts are affected and influenced. Paul uttered a similar prayer request in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, when he said, Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, this is fascinating because Paul isn't saying to the Thessalonians, hey, guys, you know, uh, I'm going to do the same exact thing in every other town that I did in Thessalonica. So because I'm doing the same thing, I'm expecting the same result. No, Paul was expecting to do the same thing, but knew that the results would vary. And he felt that if they prayed, the word would speed ahead and be honored. There would be the possibility of effectiveness as they cried out to God in prayer, especially that they would be delivered from persecutors. And so as you pray locally and nationally and internationally, as you pray for your home church, be in prayer for open doors for the word the declaration of the mystery of Christ, which of course is the gospel message and really in one sense just Jesus himself, God's mystery, which is Christ according to chapter 2, verse 2 of this epistle. Now I like that Paul says, on account of which I am in prison. You know, he just you know, sat there in prison not asking that he would be set free from prison, but praying that the word of God, that the gospel would be set free and that he might make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. If you're praying for a pastor or for a leader, pray for them to have clarity and pray for them to have boldness. Now, that's how he told them to pray. This is how he told them to live. Verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul speaks to the Colossians concerning their walk and concerning their speech, not just inside of the church, but towards those who are on the outside. He says, make the best use of the time, redeem the time, in other words. It means to buy up all the opportunities that time offers, to make the most of the opportunity, to seize them when they occur, to snap them up, to realize that you're only on this earth for a short season of time. Preach the message to those around you. Share with them the love of Christ. Be conscious of that reality. Be conscious of that message. And so the way you walk, he says, let it be with wisdom. You know, the way a Christian works and witnesses and relationships that they have, it's so important that there's a wise kind of life. If they see a foolish person, a person who can't hold it together, there is nothing attractive about their witness. But then verse 6, he says, not just the way that you walk, but your speech. Let your speech be gracious, 
seasoned with salt, I think that Paul is referring to an attractiveness, a flavor of speech. Let it be seasoned. Let it be gracious. Let it be sweet and kind and courteous and pleasant, not legalistic, not harsh, not expecting an unbelieving person to live under the New Testament dictates. Don't expect that from your culture. Instead, be gracious, be attractive in your speech, uncompromising in your beliefs, but ready to answer, kind, not defensive. He says, verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Not what to answer, which of course is important for us to do, but here Paul is highlighting how we ought to answer each person. I think a Christian should be one of the most confident, joyful, glad, happy people on earth. When persecuted for their faith, when questioned, when challenged, not being like an animal that's backed into a corner and, and uh, forced to fight back, but just a person that understands, I, I know where I'm going. Jesus is so real. He's done an incredible work in my life that is more real to me than, than, than anything else. I'm so confident of that. And to speak from that tone and from that platform, I think is so gracious, so attractive, that we would know how we ought to answer each person. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.